Today we're going to begin looking at the books that I introduced last Sunday, the books of First and Second Samuel, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there with me to chapter 1, if you would. First Samuel uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. They're right towards the beginning of the Old Testament, certainly in the first half of the Bible. Uh, we're going to uh, be here for quite some time. We're going to spend a number of weeks here, uh, months actually, uh, there's a lot in these two volumes, and uh, I have a dilemma uh, as we, even we begin. The scenes themselves, the, the parts, the portions of the scripture that we're going to look at are very long. This is the way it is with stories in the Bible. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing a letter, if he wanted to make a point, he could do it in a paragraph or a couple of verses even. Uh, but in the stories of the Bible, they need four characters, three scenes, and at least two and a half conflicts. So uh, long passages, and I struggle sometimes to know whether or not it's worth reading these uh, long passages before we look at them. I do struggle with this. I want you to hear the whole story, but I don't want your mind to wander to your grocery shopping that you have to do. So um, I'm going to start at least, this is how I'm going to start if I'm going to err, on the side of reading more of the Bible than reading less of the Bible. Let's let God's words dominate more than anything else. So we're going to read... Uh, 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 2, 11. It's a story that you know, uh, but uh, uh, follow me here as we go through this passage of Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, oh, to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Hannah wisely did not answer. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. 
And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord of him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vows, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make sure, make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord God Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge from the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. John Kessler is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He wrote a memoir. It's called A Stranger in the House of God. And in this book, he wrote about his struggles with prayer. See if this sounds right to you. My prayers felt like the petitions I sometimes made to my parents. The greater the request, the more ambiguous the response. Mom, can I get a new bike? Hmm, we'll see. Such an answer occupied that mysterious no-man's land between wish and fulfillment children know so well. There is a region where the atmosphere is a mixture of hope and disappointment. 
only as much hope as is needed to keep our wildest dreams at bay and not enough disappointment to kill them altogether. Ambiguous answers. Answers in a no man's land. My children accuse me of giving answers like that every now and then. Maybe. Sometimes they're right. It's an easy way, not an easy way, it's a gentler way of saying no without the bluntless no. I imagine that we all feel like that sometimes when we pray. Do you ever feel that way? That when we pray, God says, well, we'll see, we'll see. If that feeling settles in too deeply, or the trouble for which you're seeking relief goes on for too long, something that's inconvenient can move to discouragement, and, and disappointment can become despair. Maybe you might feel sometimes like confessing, I know there is a God. And I know He hears and answers prayer. I, I know it, it works for other people. But He just to me seems very murky. I'm not sure He's willing to actually help me or inclined to actually answer me. You may have that confession. Of course, you can't say that out loud. That would be terrible. But you're not really sure that He's very reliable. Uh, prayer in those conditions seems like being on hold of Verizon for three hours. Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line for the next available representative. You are number 45 in line. We'll get to you in three days after our lunch break. It's not God's good pleasure for you to live in that sort of fog. And so the author of Samuel introduces us to a woman whose name is Hannah. You know her story. Many of you know her story very well. She is the most pious, and I use that phrase only as a compliment, only as high praise. She's the most pious woman in the Old Testament. Uh, some of you have children. You have named your children after her. Uh, I know that of all the names that I ever recommend from this pulpit for you to name your children, 95% of them are terrible. I know that. But here's one to keep. This is a good one. I want to try to summarize this story in one sentence, and then that sentence will give us kind of an outline of how we want to walk through this narrative. Here's how I want to summarize this sentence. I think this is the story of a woman in anguish who finds help in God as she remembers his power and his faithfulness. This is a woman in anguish who finds help in God as she remembers his promise and his faithfulness. Now let's start with the first part of that sentence. We're going to talk about Hannah, this woman in anguish. I wonder if you noticed, as we were reading through, the emphasis that's in this passage on Hannah's grief and her emotions and how beaten down she is in her mind and her heart. Verse seven of the verse one, uh, chapter one, it describes her as weeping. She's weeping and she's too upset to eat. In verse ten, she's weeping bitterly and in deep anguish. That word deep anguish is a word that Job used to describe his troubles. He's in anguish. In verse 11, she's in misery. In verse 15, she's deeply troubled. In verse 16, she's in great grief, great anguish and grief. Now, why is she so upset? The Bible doesn't hide the answer at all. She's upset because she cannot have any children. She's a barren woman. It's been a long-standing problem. The text uses this phrase year after year. Year after year, this has gone on, that she has, they have been going to worship with her family, and she goes without any children. The other reason, I wonder, I'm not sure about this, but I wonder if it's distinctly possible that Elkanah married Hannah, and after a few years, when Hannah did not conceive, 
did he marry Penina so that he, in hopes of having children? And she, by this time, has sons and daughters. It's a long problem. And we can understand this pressure that Hannah's experiencing on a couple of different levels. Some of you know, and you read this passage, you know the deep pain that infertility brings. Today we dedicated children. There are women who don't come to church on days like this or on Mother's Day because they desperately want to be up here with a child. Kimberly and Philip Monroe uh, experienced uh, infertility. They wrote about it in uh, an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Listen to what it says, what they wrote. One in six couples struggle with infertility. One in four couples over the age of 35 struggles with infertility. In one study, 63% of women who experience both infertility and divorce rated their infertility as more painful than the divorce. In another study, women who experienced either chronic or life-threatening diseases ranked the emotional pain of infertility at similar levels or of that of a terminal illness. Infertility comes, you just want to die. But sadly, they say, infertility is often misunderstood. People take it lightly. A person with a chronic disease or terminal illness gets support from those around them. But to a couple struggling with infertility, that same pe- those same people offer platitudes like, well, count all your blessings. This is one level of the story. She's just experiencing this as a woman who desires to have children, and it's painful. But there's more here going on, because Hannah and her husband are followers of the God of the Old Testament, who commands them to be fruitful and multiply, who had promised, he had promised that through one of them, uh, the Messiah was going to come, a son who would deliver them from sin and darkness. For Hannah, this, the inability to have children is a crisis not only of, for her family, but it's a crisis of faith too. Now, I mentioned last week that one of the ways that biblical stories work is by parallels. There are parallels in the Bible. That's how stories pack a punch. Does this story sound familiar to you at all? It should sound a little familiar. Um, I want to mention three parallels in this story that kind of help unfold what the author of Samuel is trying to tell us here. The first uh, parallel is the parallel between Hannah and the patriarchs. Now, if you can't spell patriarchs and you're taking notes, I mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You could just write that down. Hannah and the patriarchs, those three men, a man, his son, his grandson, all three of them are in the book of Genesis. Their story is told, and all three of them faced infertility in their marriages. God gave all three of them sons after a long period of agonizing prayer. Now, I think this story reminds me most specifically of Jacob. You remember Jacob? Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the loved wife. Leah was the fertile wife. Uh, When Rachel finally gave birth to Joseph, um, his father at that point in time had ten other sons already through his wife and his concubines. I wonder wonder if that's what Elkanah is thinking a little bit here when he says, aren't I better to you than ten sons? Jacob had ten sons. Aren't I better? Now this parallel here sets us up to to a couple things. One, it it, it reminds us of the pain that's going on in this family. We've read this story before, and it doesn't, it's just hard. And it also sets us up to have high expectations. God must be at work in this situation because I've seen this before, and God works in situations like this. 
Now, here's another parallel. There's a parallel between Hannah and the patriarchs. There's a parallel, too, between Hannah's son, Samuel, and Samson. Samson. Now, Samson is another story that you might know. Samson, the strong man of the Bible. His story is told in the book of Judges. There's two ways that this story is parallel with, with Samson. Well, actually, I should tell you, first of all, that probably Samuel and Samson lived about the same time. In fact, one Old Testament scholar believes that Sam, Samson's 20 years of influence, mentioned in Judges, happens chronologically between 1 Samuel 4 and 7. So Samuel and Samson were contemporaries. Now, uh, the parallels, how do, we, how do we see these parallels? Well, in Judges chapter 13, when the Bible introduces us to Samson, it begins, there was a certain man who, and he gives his name and where he's from, just like 1 Samuel chapter 1, there was a certain man who, and it tells his family. So, there's that parallel. The other parallel is that Samson and Samuel were both Nazarites. Nazarites. Well, um, Hannah makes reference to this. She says that no razor will ever be used on his head. Uh, a um, Nazarite was someone who took a vow in the Old Testament, and they vowed three things, not to cut their hair, not to drink uh, wine or grape juice or eat grapes or raisins, uh, nothing from the vine, and uh, not to touch dead bodies, those three things. Mo- many people took Nazarite vows for a short period of time. Samuel and Samson and one other person in the Bible were lifelong Nazarites. John the Baptist is the third one, if you're trying to think. If you're ever on Jeopardy, those are the three, okay? So, um, based on those vows, I think this is a great way to understand Nazarite vows. Um, Nazarite vows are, there's a vow that you are going to live constantly in the presence of God. Because those rules, at least the two of them, about drink uh, grapes and uh, about dead bodies, apply to priests specifically in the house. When you're in God's presence in the Lord's house, you can't, uh, don't be drunk and don't touch dead bodies. And, and now the Nazarites live that way outside of the temple. Uh, they, they are constantly living in God's presence. So Samson and Samuel. Now, what that means is that Samuel must have had just a massive ponytail. Okay, just saying that too. Now, Samson's story comes uh, in Judges right before Samuel's story. And you, maybe if you've read Samson's story, you know, Samson was a disaster. What a disaster. Oh, terrible. What's going to happen to this child? You read about his birth. What's going to happen to him? What's he going to be like? What's going to make the difference between Samson and Samuel? Can I suggest to you that one of the, the parts to the answer to that question, there's a lot of parts to that question, but can I suggest to you that one part of the answer to that question is their mothers? Uh, be careful of just reading stories in the Old Testament to find a good example. Uh, that's not the main point of most of the stories in the Bible, but it's at least here. Samson's mother was spiritually clueless, absolutely spiritually clueless. She hardly knew God's name. She didn't know how to uh, respond to God's representative. Samuel's mother, though, is the most godly woman in the Old Testament. Um, young mothers raising sons and daughters... Be sure that you are estimating rightly the influence of your confidence in God and, and, and how your confidence in God will influence your children. Don't raise Samson. Raise Samuel. Hannah lived during a period of time when the nation of Israel, when uh, women in particular, were abused. Not Hannah, 
um, uh, Elkanah treated her very well. But women at this period of time were used sexually. They were treated as, as um, um, less than valuable property. Uh, it, was, it was not a good time. Now, just as an aside, you, this is one of the ways that the Bible tells us how we can evaluate the health of this society. How healthy is this society? Women are being abused. You can tell how honorable a society is by how women are treated in it. Or, more specifically, you can tell how honorable a man is by how he treats women. Or, more generally here, you can tell how honorable a person is by how he or she treats the people that they perceive as weaker or inferior to them. Watch how people treat waiters in the restaurant or janitors in their office or baggers in the grocery line. If you're out on a date with a man and he is rude to the waiter or uh, other people that he perceives uh, being inferior to him in occupation or position, if he's rude to them, that is a sign. It's a red flag. It's a clear sign from God. He could have written it in the clouds. Leave that guy alone. All right? Unfriend him or whatever. I don't know what the cool kids do. So, now, during this period when women are abused, there are two prominent women who rise in this, this period of time. Deborah and Hannah. Name your daughters. Those are good names. Deborah influenced her world through her judicial leadership, her prophetic guidance. Hannah changed her world through her pursuit of godly motherhood. Don't underestimate your influence. Now, there's a third parallel here. You might not have seen this right away. Uh, This is the parallel between Hannah and the nation at large. Between Hannah and the nation at large. Um, Hannah is a personal embodiment of the entire nation of Israel, what's going on in their, in their existence. What do we know about Hannah? Hannah is barren, and she is being persecuted by Penina. Um, the nation is experiencing the same thing. There's no fruitfulness in the land, and they're being persecuted. We're going to talk about this in a couple more uh, weeks, but right now it's the Philistines that are dominating them. Penina is mocking Hannah. The Philistines are dominating Israel. Hannah is this personal embodiment of the nation. Now, the irony is that the name Hannah means blessed or favored or graced of God. Why is the favored one barren? doesn't make any sense. She's not very favored, it would seem. Why are God's chosen people suffering? I think it's in Fiddler on the Roof. If this is what being God's chosen people means, maybe God should choose somebody else for a change. Now, why? Why is the nation in such trouble? Why are they barren? Why are they persecuted? Because they're not faithful to God. And Elkanah is, Hannah is, but they're so rare. They're so rare. And you can see this faithlessness in the life of Eli, the priest of the tabernacle. There he is. He is so spiritually insensitive that, when, that he doesn't recognize prayer when he sees it. He thinks it's drunkenness. What is it, where is this guy hanging out that he thinks that someone is, is drunk all the time if their lips are moving? What, what is his life like? Um, and then uh, when he finds out she was actually praying, he offers her the assurance, oh, God will answer your prayer. He doesn't even know what she's praying. Why is he, what is he doing here? Um, actually, in, in all those stories, um, in every story in the Bible, in fact, it features a barren woman. There is somebody who comes and tells the mother and father that she's going to give birth. Um, sometimes it's God himself. 
Sometimes it's an angel. They appear in majestic glory. Poor Hannah got stuck with Eli. (laughs) Terrible. The nation is unfaithful to God. They're barren. They're persecuted. Now this woman here comes before God and she finds help in him. That's the resolution. That's the second part of this story. Hannah finds help in God. There's a detail in this story that should trouble you. Troubles me a little bit. I I don't understand it. The detail's repeated twice. It's in verse 5 and 6. To Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, the text says. Twice. What's God doing? How could he do this to her? This godly woman. Look what God did to her. This is not a universally applicable problem, a principle. Uh, not all infertility is due to the direct action of God like this. The Bible knows about diseases and the Bible knows about uh, physical problems and spiritual problems. But here, the, you know, we know of God's sovereignty in, in a universal sense. Here, though, the connection is made very directly here. The Lord has closed Hannah's womb. Why can't Hannah conceive? Because the Lord has closed her womb. Why did he do this to her? If he commanded the nation to have children, and Hannah's a pious woman, why? I don't know the answer to that question. The text doesn't say. I can see the results of this. I can see the results of her anguish. He did great work in the mind and heart of Hannah here. Maybe there was no other way for him to accomplish this in her. I I want to paraphrase. It's a quote. I should know it. A.W. Tozer used to say, Before a man will use a man greatly, he must first break him grievously. Or something like that. What's happening to Hannah? What's striking, actually what's striking about this, is that God's involvement in her barrenness does not cause Hannah to turn away from God. I don't know how much she understood of this, of God's direct role, whether she had the sense of, just a general sense of God's sovereignty, or whether she knew this word, the Lord had closed her womb, but it doesn't stop her from seeking him out. It doesn't stop her from year after year going to the Lord's house to worship. Uh, this scene, this cannot be the first time that she prayed, can it? Uh, and, and she hasn't stopped. Year after year after year, she keeps going. She keeps going. I wonder if you've stopped. Uh, How many years of anguish have you had before you stop? Or maybe you've already stopped. Stopped praying. Stopped seeking God's face. Stopped pouring out your misery to him. I mentioned Hannah's piety a, a number of times. Hannah's the only woman in the Old Testament who prays like this. She's the only woman in the Old Testament who it says she went up to the tabernacle to pray. She uses God's name more than any other woman. She prays longer than any other woman in the Old Testament. She's the first person in the Bible to address God as Lord God Almighty. Peter Leithart says that Hannah's suffering has made her a theologian. And she repeatedly confesses her submission to God. I am your servant. I am your servant. I am your servant. This has not changed, uh, this has not made her turn from God. It has not made her give up on her faithfulness. Um, Why? Why did she keep going and seeking God? Why did she keep doing this? She tells us in her prayer in in chapter 2, verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. 
There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is nowhere else that I'm going to go. The temptation that she had to pray to some other God or to try something else must have been intense. This area was dominated by the worship of a God. We, his name is spelled B-A-A-L. We sometimes pronounce it Baal or sometimes Baal, as um, maybe how you might pronounce it. Um, Baal was the fertility god. If your wife wasn't getting pregnant or your animals weren't getting pregnant, if your field wasn't producing crops, you would go pray to the fertility god and the fertility god was supposed to answer and, and, and give you a child or, or animals or crops. In fact, all over uh, Israel, archaeologists have found little statues. They're about this tall and they're shaped like Barbie dolls. They're very buxom little creatures. They're exaggerated femininity. You're supposed to pray to these little statues and they're supposed to, the statues are supposed to give you what you want, fertility. Hannah must have had friends who had one of these. She did not go. She had other options, but she knew there is only one God. Do you have a substitute in mind for your anguish? To relieve your anguish? Something else that you rely on? Someone else? that you rely on? We find here in this passage a reminder of why we are a praying people. Prayer emerges. It comes from the intersection of your desperation and God's power and faithfulness. Those two things. Prayer, or to say it another way, prayer grows in the soil of desperation and it is fertilized by confidence in God's power and His goodness. Now, if that's true, if prayer comes, emerges in those circumstances, my desperation and my confidence in God's power and goodness, then I understand why you stopped praying or why I stopped praying. Either you have lost confidence in God's willingness or ability to help, or you have stopped praying because you're fairly confident that whatever it is you're facing, you can do it. You can manage on your own. You don't want to pray because God won't hear you. Or you don't need to pray because you can handle it on your own. Do you fit in one of those two categories? Think with me about what Hannah's prayer says about confident people. Not, not just confident people, cocky people. Uh, people who have it all together. People who have it all together at least more than other people do. People who have the skills and the looks and the money and the friends and the influence to make it on their own. And they know it. People like Penina, who's all her children and people like the Philistines with all their great army, or you and your soccer skills, or your brain power, or your people skills, or your cool. Look again at chapter 2, verse 4. What does Hannah say about people like that? The bows of the warrior are broken, oh, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. Those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who has barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. All you need to cry out to God is a whole lot of nothing. Nothing at all is all you need. And if you have something, you can come. God does not listen to people who have something. He only listens to people who have nothing. You cannot be impressed with yourself and with God at the same time. You need to be poor in spirit. Now maybe that's not your problem. Maybe... Maybe your troubles, maybe they have convinced you that you're not to be impressed with yourself. 
We talk a lot about our church about our lack of spiritual qualifications. Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Every part of us is twisted and perverted because of our rebellion against God. This is our natural condition by nature and choice. We live in enmity with our Creator. It sets everything off kilter. You need to confess that and know that and own that in order to be a Christian. We're people who need to be rescued from our sins. We need a Savior. We exalt Jesus as that Savior because He became our sin bearer on the cross. And he, in order to be reconciled to God and receive forgiveness and life, you need to turn to Him and you need to come with nothing. Faith is need aimed in the direction of sure supply. Hmm. That's how you become a Christian. So maybe your high estimation of yourself is not the problem. Maybe you don't pray because you don't have much confidence in God's power and faithfulness. It's wavering. Is he going to answer? He hasn't yet. This story is not a guarantee that God will immediately end your anguish. That's not how it worked in Hannah's life. And I would imagine that even after Samuel came along, it didn't make Penina stop. You think she stopped? Until she meets the buzzsaw of God's judgment in verse 5, she probably didn't stop. Yeah, you got one kid. Ha! One kid. One son, good for you. Do you know how many grandchildren I have? I don't think she stopped. There is no person in the whole Bible whose life is perfected by God, for whom God removes all troubles and all temptations and all trials. Nobody experiences that in the Bible. One of the reasons I know that is because about a thousand years after Hannah prayed this way, there's another woman who is probably another, a younger woman who was named Mary, sang a song that sounded a lot like Hannah's song. Listen to what Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang. Uh, she visited Elizabeth, and this is what she sang. Luke 1, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. Doesn't it sound like Hannah's prayer? He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. God turns things upside down. He, he does it. He puts the proud and arrogant in their place. He restores the humble and the poor. He does it over and over in the Bible, little by little, piece by piece, step by step. And when his people cry out to him, sometimes they get Samuel. Yeah. Sometimes they get Samson. Okay. In the fullness of time, he sent Jesus. Yeah. But throughout all this anguish and all the crying out of his people, he's never indifferent to them. This will always be true. It will always be true of you until the consummation of the ages. There will always be more for God to bring. He may not solve the massive looming problems weighing over you, but he'll bring relief. He'll bring mercy for the day. Mercy for tomorrow and the next day. God has not yet ever perfected anyone's circumstances in this life. There's always more. There's always more to come from God. Never perfection now. I think Hannah knew this, actually. That's why at the end of her prayer, she prayed about God's king. It's strange at the end of verse 10, she says, 
He gives strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Some people look at this and they say, well, clearly Hannah couldn't have written this because she didn't know anything about the king. And this poem is just added here and attributed to her because the whole book of Samuel is about where the king comes from. Hannah couldn't have known that. Leave Hannah alone. She's the most pious woman in the Old Testament. She's read the Bible. There's hints all the way through that God's going to give a king. Don't count Hannah short. But notice this. She's got a son. She's got a son. God heard her. After all these years, he provided her with a son. She sings with her heart and her mouth, and she's stirred joy. But even then, she wants God's anointed king. She's got a son. She wants the king. Because he is indeed the better way through whom God cares for his people. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this story uh, in the beginning of Samuel and we are glad to know about this great woman who cried out in anguish to you and we're thankful to you that you were not indifferent to her agony. We confess you, you made her wait for quite some time And that is hard to receive and hard to uh, appreciate. And yet you were not indifferent. You did deliver. Oh Lord, I pray, I pray that you would encourage us by this woman's great example and by her expectation in you. I pray in particular we'll be talking about the hero David in, in weeks to come. I pray that as we think about this mother, that you would encourage the mothers in our congregation. Grant us warrior women who cry out to you and who rejoice like Hannah does as they remember your power, your faithfulness. Lord, I do pray for the men and women in our congregation this morning who themselves are in anguish over trouble that has troubled them for a long time and it hasn't gone away and they're discouraged about crying out to you. Grant us faithfulness in this. You are the God who turns the world upside down. You are just, you are right. You sent your son as proof of your commitment to do what is right Raise our confidence in you. Do that, we pray. We pray because you sent your Son, and we pray in your Son, the King's name, saying, Amen. As we come now to the close of our service, we're going to sing one more song. Please stand.